Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. Um, I'm sharing with you uh, a message on giving that, uh, as you know, was prepared a couple weeks ago. We ended up going a different direction, thanks to the Holy Spirit, and uh, Dave Gulliford filled the pulpit last week. So today, I'm going to share this message with you. And whenever a minister gets on the subject of giving, some people get a little bit nervous. Uh, They prepare themselves to be offended (laughs) or to be defensive. Uh, The minister, uh, especially if the minister is a pastor, can also get a little nervous because it can sound a little self-serving. It's like, you know, there are passages in the Bible, and there's a principle that's clearly expressed uh, that we are to honor those who serve in the ministry, who deliver, who preach the word, and that there's a, there's a blessing for those who honor pastors, who honor ministers. But if a pastor get us, gets up and preaches that, sounds like too much like, hey, come on, give me the honor I'm due, when uh, it's always easier if a guest minister comes in and tells you, here's why you should honor your pastor. There's something very, very good in it for you. But it's a hard thing for the pastor to preach. And uh, likewise, when a pastor gets up and says, hey, here's why you need to bring your tithes and offerings to church, it can sound a little self-serving. So I want to start right off the bat by saying, nothing I'm saying today is based on any desperate need that Living Word Family Church has. And I don't get a bonus. I don't get a percentage of the offerings. I've got a set salary. All right, so it isn't about that. Uh, This is about... We're walking in the path of blessing that God has already laid out. Uh, another reason sermons or even remarks on giving can uh, be a bit of a minefield is there's already a negative idea in some folks' minds uh, about pr- uh, particularly the prosperity message. I'll say a little bit about this this morning. And uh, one more reason it can be dangerous is that it can smell of desperation. Uh, some pastors only uh, I went to a church uh, shortly after Canaan Land. It was a good church, uh, Bible-believing, praying folks. They weren't word of faith, uh, but I was there for the better part of a year and came to know them as a bunch of people who loved Jesus. And in the entire time I was there, I only heard one message uh, on giving. Uh, and the pastor said, I don't like to talk about this stuff because, uh, you know, There are more important things in the Word of God to talk about, but you need to know that giving is down, and we've got needs to meet, and we've got bills to pay that aren't getting paid, and so would you please give more? This was essentially the message. I'm like, well, the only time you're going to talk about giving is when you are desperate. Uh, Is there really nothing more in Scripture? I knew better than that at that point. Is there really nothing more in Scripture about uh, the importance of giving and receiving and Uh, The offering and the tithe, of course there is. And it needs to be addressed on a regular basis just like every other biblical doctrine. Now, uh, I saw, speaking of desperation, while mom and dad were Ramah students, uh, we got excited because uh, there was a minister that we had learned was going to be on TV. And uh, so we we, we watched this message. uh, and And this was on like, a network TV wasn't you know they didn't have cable back then, and this was a big primetime special. And this guy was preaching up a storm. I won't say who it was, but you'd probably recognize the name. And uh, man, I mean, he was just I mean preaching. He was he wasn't a teacher. This guy was preaching. He's preaching the gospel, and right in near the climax of his message, it cuts away to a break 
where the minister had pre-recorded a message and he's looking at the camera with tears in his eyes. Would you please give what you can so that we can stay on the air? This message is too important for, to, for us to lose. People need to hear it, but we can't do it because uh, we just don't have the funds to continue to broad. And it was this begging, pleading, crying, what I would call today a poverty mentality. It was manipulative and the timing was horrible. And again, it smacked of desperation. I don't think those kind of pleas are honoring to God who has promised to abundantly supply our needs. Do you? So what does the Bible say about it? That seems like a pretty safe place to go, right? Uh, now, we could, of course, do a series on this subject, and this may turn into a series. We'll see. There are so many passages, Old Testament and New Testament, that talk about money, tithes, giving, prosperity. But this is going to be, as far as I know, a one-off message. And uh, again, it's just to stir us up by way of reminder regarding just how important this is in the life of the New Testament believer. And let me start with just a few words about the Old Testament tithe. Many people assume that the concept of the tithe is uh, rooted in the law, that it originated with Moses, and frankly, uh, they will use that as an out. Hey, we're no longer under the law. Uh, we live in the age of grace, uh, and so if we're, we're free from the law, we're free from tithing. Um, and of course, tithing was codified in the law, but for one thing, I read, I read an article, this has been, there have been a, a few articles I read a couple of years ago when I was preparing a, a message or a series on the tithe that said if you actually read through the law carefully, there's more than one tithe. And if we are going to do this according to the law, uh, you add up the tithes and it, it's more like 30% of your income and increase. So don't complain about a 10% if we're going to talk about the tithe rather than the tithes because the Old Testament... Um, Jew had to bring his tithe of this and his tithe of this and his tithe of that, right? We just talk about our tithe. But uh, most of you know, I think, that the principle of the tithe appeared centuries before the law. After the war of the kings, Abraham, uh, the war of the kings with Abraham, uh, the mysterious priest of God, Melchizedek, approached Abraham, uh, appeared to him, and Abraham gave him a tithe of all of the spoils of war. And years later, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, journeyed to Haran, and on his way, he asks for God's favor. You remember this? And he says to him, if you will be with me and take care of me and bring me back safely, I will give you a tenth of all. So there was this principle and this idea that was more or less clearly understood that predated the law by centuries. And we can talk about that sometime, and I'm going to come back to the tithe as law thing in a few minutes, but what I want to focus on really is just the principle of giving. And let me start by saying that we as believers should not be looking for formulas, right? If we're looking for something like, God promised me that I give, that I will receive 100 times what I give in return. I think in that case, we are looking at it as more of an investment opportunity, uh, than, than an offering from the heart. And let me say also from the start that I 100% believe that God delights in prospering us. 
okay? I do not believe that God is glorified by our poverty. Now, I don't believe he's glorified by our sickness. Do you? But can I glorify God in my sickness? Absolutely. Can a believer glorify God in the midst of poverty? Yes. That is a different statement than God made me poor or God made me sick. There are seasons when we struggle with different things that we know we've been redeemed from. And we can glorify God right in the middle of it without making the mistake of saying, this is God's will for my life. God's will, remember, now listen, if you want to make the case for prosperity, I will grant you that it's an easier case to make from the Old Testament. When you look at how many of the men who pleased God, who walked in this abundance and know that it was a direct result of God prospering them, and when you read uh, God himself saying, I delight in the prosperity of my servants. My servants. If he delights in the prosperity of his servants, how much more does he delight in the prosperity of his children? But we also have to remember that God doesn't change. If he ever delighted in the prosperity of his servants, he still delights in the prosperity of his servants. Right? Even more so in his children. But uh, I think we'd really have to have our heads in the sand if we didn't acknowledge that this prosperity message uh, has probably been abused uh, and taken to extremes more than any other aspect of the word of faith, okay? As if we can only glorify God if we are living and enjoying and eating and uh, everything, it just it, the absolute best. As if there is no place in the life of a faith-filled believer for conservative, a conservative approach, uh, to our finances, to our savings, and to our spending. I want to look at a few specific passages, but I do want you to remember that. Even though, this is, even though it can be abused, even though uh, financial prosperity, uh, a superabundance is not the end of our, uh, it's not the end goal of faith, we do have to remember that poverty, sickness, and death are part of the curse, and we have been redeemed from the curse. All right? Now, these passages I want to look at illustrate the principle, and then uh, we'll nail it down with some specific instructions from the New Testament about giving. First, let me read this in Luke chapter 6, uh, 38. It says this. You know this. I, I quote this uh, a lot when we are receiving the offering. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom, for with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Like I said, I quote it. A lot of folks do when it's time to take the offering. But in context, if you read this, Jesus is not really talking, he's certainly not talking specifically about money. He's, he's just spoken about loving your enemies, being kind to, to people who are evil, being merciful, and then, well, let's just look at this. Let's just go back one verse earlier. In verse 37, judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over. It will be put into your bosom, for with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. So what's he actually talking about? He's talking about mercy, forgiveness. 
If you want to go through life being judged, being scrutinized, and being held accountable and responsible for every dumb thing you say and do, then that's the way you live your life. You, be, you scrutinize everybody else. You judge. Uh, walk in unforgiveness, because this is what you're going to reap. Sow mercy, reap mercy. That's a good principle to live by, and that's really what he's talking about here. But I still think it's right to apply this principle to our tithes and our offerings, particularly to our offerings. Give of your possessions and assets, you will reap a similar reward. When he talks about, uh, well, the, the, the laws of sowing and reaping, right? You reap what you sow, you reap more than you sow, and you reap after you sow. Uh, Given, it'll be given to you. He doesn't, when he says that, he's not just. He doesn't just say, give mercy, and it'll be given to you. Give forgiveness, and it'll be given to you. He's applying, this is important, and you'll see how this is important when we tie it in with a couple of the scriptures, but I need you to see this. Yes, in this passage, he's talking about the importance of mercy and forgiveness and love, but then he takes what I believe is a general truth a general principle, and backs his specific statements up. In other words, he's not just saying this principle of giving and receiving only applies to mercy. He's saying since this general principle that whatever you give, it'll be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, remember it also applies to mercy and forgiveness. Can you see this? All right. Uh, let's look at... Uh, James chapter 1. This is probably my favorite illustration of this from a faith standpoint. In James chapter 1 beginning in verse 5 it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, uh, once again, we've got a specific thing that James is talking about, which is wisdom, and what he's doing is applying the larger principle, that if you ask anything from God, and you are not in faith, that you won't have a, a sense of expectation. There's no reason for you to expect to receive what you're asking for, because you're double-minded. He is not saying this principle only applies to wisdom. He's saying if you lack wisdom, ask, and he'll give it to you liberally. But here's the general principle that we apply to it. When you ask, ask in faith, just like when you ask for anything that is God's will. There's a built-in control there. We're asking according to the will of God. Only way we can be in faith is to know God's will because faith begins where the will of God is known. So when we ask for supply, when we ask for provision, we need to ask in faith. Now is there a promise or two that we can stand on when we go? Is there something maybe in the New Testament and the Old Testament that says God desires to meet our needs abundantly? 
super abundantly. Anybody think there is? Let's take a poll. Anybody think there's a scripture we can stand? Or when we go to God and say, hey, I need something, and it's a financial need, are we just throwing it up there and hope that he answers this in his mercy and kindness? I'm not going to point to you and say, give me the scripture, but how many of you just know there is a scripture or two or more that says, yes, this is God's will for you? Okay, about 40% of you believe that. What's the matter with you? Of course you know this is true. You thought I was pulling a fast one, didn't you? You guys just don't trust me. Uh, this is, this is, this, I am for you. No, of course there are scriptures uh, that we can stand on. Uh, here, though, I think is the gold standard when it comes to the importance of giving. In, and I referred to this uh, a week or two ago. Sto I told you I was stealing it from my message. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now the context here is giving and charitable deeds. The principle is often misunderstood. Now this is certainly true, uh, and, and this is the point I was making either last week or the week before, so I'll make it quickly today. Uh, this is true, even I think it's a misunderstanding of the scripture. Here's what, what we can say. I can more or less accurately gauge what's important to you, where your treasure is, what you are committed to, by just watching you. If I follow you around for a week, make a list of how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you spend your energy, your talents, uh, I will figure out what's important to you and what's a priority. And if church... The kingdom of God, the gospel, are, are, have, nothing, have very little to do with your time, your energy, re your resources, and talents, then no matter what you think you know should be right about you, it's not important to you. So Jesus is saying, where's your heart? This is what's important. Where is your heart? And so you, we read this scripture, and it sounds like Jesus is saying, if you're laying up treasures in heaven, it's because that's where your heart is. And there's, there's a little bit of truth there, but that's not what he said, is it? What he's saying is, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. If you want to change your heart, if you know, I know I should be more passionate about the kingdom of God, it needs to be a bigger deal in my life, one of the best things you can do is invest in it financially. Now you've got skin in the game. Right? You are invested in it financially. That makes you more invested in it from a heart standpoint. Suddenly you are rooting for the kingdom of God. You are rooting for the church. Your heart will follow your treasure. So what did Jesus say? Lay up treasure in heaven. Because that's where your heart will be if you do. Okay? Now I think the principle in this verse, let me skip ahead to this. A great example of that is, as a rule, and there have been exceptions over the year, but, but the, the clear uh, trend over the years has been that those who have been most involved in serving and working in the church are, by and large, overwhelmingly, as a matter of fact, also the most faithful givers. Know what I mean? Every now and then I've had people come up and say, well, I can't afford to give anything, but I'll come down and I'll change light bulbs and sweep anytime you want me to. And that's fine. If, if, if you're at a point where you really have nothing to give, but there are some people who would rather 
Just to, as I said, in my experience, it's just been a handful over the years. To, uh, most of the time, the people who want to come down and sweep and clean and serve and do anything else are also giving uh, significantly out of their resources. Uh, but it really is a matter of priority. Quickly look at Haggai uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for yourselves, for you yourselves, to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat but do not have enough. You drink but are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves but no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to put into a bag with holes. What's he saying here? He's talking about the temple. They'd come back after the exile, and they started eagerly rebuilding their homes and everything else and ignored the things of God. And God's saying, because you're not taking care of the kingdom of God first, you're not taking care of the temple first, all this stuff that you're planting, you're not going to reap nearly as much as you thought you would. You're saving your money. It might as well be putting it into a purse with holes. You, just, you can't figure out where it's going, but it's not being blessed because you are forgetting that the tithe, the first fruits, belong to the Lord. It's similar to what Malachi says. Stop robbing God. Give him what belongs to him and see how blessed you are. How blessed you'll be. And this is where we need to be honest about what God has done here because ah, this is where we're, we kind of get on the line of, well, why am I giving? Am I giving to get? Because those are some pretty bold promises. Given it will be given unto you. Good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Uh, gives to all men liberally without reproach, but, but, but ask in faith. And then uh, I'll open up windows of heaven and pour out blessing. There's not room enough to contain. And then we say, well, then I'm going to give. And then you could... And there's an element of truth to, truth to this as well. If you're giving right, you're not thinking about what you're going to get. You want to give because you love God. You want to give because you want to obey. And uh, C.S. Lewis talks about this in a different uh, context in his book, A Grief Observed. And this is the reference I believe I'll make in one way or another in the funeral service tomorrow. He He's writing about, I don't know how many of you have read this book. It's a, and part of it's a difficult book to read. And this is not C.S. Lewis at his philosophical best where he's solving this stuff. He's basically keeping a diary of his emotions and his thoughts and his prayers after the death of his wife. He got married late in life, and she died uh, very soon thereafter. And so he's wrestling with all this stuff. And when he gets in, this is probably a little more than halfway through the book, he talks about how Obviously, the comfort for the Christian who loses a Christian loved one is we will see them again. He says, my problem is I find myself getting more excited about seeing her again than I do about seeing Jesus. Now, I think he, goes, I think he overstates it a little and says something like, uh, but if that's my goal, if what I'm thinking about is her, then I'll never get to heaven. Well... There's a little bit of a uh, works mentality there, okay? And he's probably overstating it on purpose. I like Lewis, all right? So I read him through rose-colored glasses sometimes. But the point is this. There is scripture that gives us specific hope of seeing not only Jesus, but one another, right? When it talks about us being caught up together with him 
and thus shall we ever be with the Lord. This idea of a reunion is absolutely scriptural and therefore absolutely okay to think about. Wouldn't it be mean of God to make it known to us that when this is all over, either when Jesus comes back or we've all breathed our last, we are going to be together. If we are in Christ, nothing not only will separate us from the love of God, nothing will separate us from one another. Now, we can talk all day about what these relationships are going to be like, what we're going to look like, uh, and they're fun conversations to have, but the main thing is, we know. We'll see each other again, right? But then if God were to turn around and say, but don't ever think about that. When you think of heaven, you should only think of being with me. And if you're thinking about your loved one who died, then I'm sorry. Heaven's not for you. God doesn't say that, does he? That would be so cruel. Now, it is true. As you read through the scriptures, most of the, most of the references to heaven are about being with him. And I think it's a mark of maturity. The more we fall in love with Christ, the more we, we appreciate the kingdom of God. That's the thing we do get excited about. But it's the same thing with money. Yes, we should give because God has commanded us to give. We should give out of a grateful heart and recognition that he has blessed us abundantly, right? But wouldn't it be something for God to make these promises? Uh, test me now in this. Bring the tithe into the storehouse and see if I will not open up the windows of heaven and pour out the blessing there's not room enough to contain. Give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Um, he promises, he says, at my right hand are pleasures forevermore. But let's get very specific. In 2 Corinthians, uh, we're going to look at chapter 9, so you can go there in a second. But in chapter 7, he's writing them a letter telling them how happy he is that they've repented. What he had done was written them a very stern letter. We don't have this letter. Uh, but he's referring to a letter that was worded very, very strongly, correcting them on some very serious sin that was going on in their church. And... Uh, he sent Titus to visit them and see how well, see they received the letter, see what their response was, and Titus came back with the great news that they had received the letter, they had repented, and the relationship had been restored. And so Paul is rejoicing, he's so happy that he's back in a good, healthy, loving relationship with this church that he had worked so long with. And then in, ver in chapter 8, he starts taking up an offering. He's collecting money for the persecuted saints in Jerusalem. And he starts telling them about how generous the Macedonians had been. He tells them uh, that, wow, uh, you guys, you know, Macedonia isn't even, they're not as well off as you are. And they gave so much. It's almost manipulative. Like, hey, what are you guys going to do? This poor church in Macedonia can't believe how much they gave. How much you guys want to give? And then he reminds them, hey, a while back before we had this falling out, you guys committed. You started to give this much. You started a project. It's time for you to fulfill that commitment and give. Give what you said you were going to give. I mean, he is, this isn't just a, he's not making vague references to honor the Lord with your increase. He's saying you need to give and you need to give a lot for this offering. You said you would. This other church did. And he goes on for many, many verses. He starts it in chapter 8, and then we get to, to verse 9, or sorry, chapter 9, and in verse 6, it says this. 
But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. That's a New Testament promise right there. Now, some people, believe it or not, would say, well, he's saying all things, uh, spiritual abundance. He's not really talking about money, but this is actually, in this case, the reverse of the principle we're talking about. When we read about, read what we say in, uh, in James there, the principle is everything that you ask God should be in faith. But the specific thing, so certainly wisdom, which is what he's writing about. The principle covers everything, but certainly wisdom. And in Luke, uh, good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over. That's a general principle that I believe includes money, but certainly applies to mercy. Here, he's talking about everything, but he's clearly, clearly, specifically talking about money because he offers this statement in the context of taking up an offering. He didn't switch subjects here. He is talking about finances. Now, yes, it applies to other things, too. We have an abundance of everything that God promises, but what he's talking about here is our finances, our supply. And he says, all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance. That word abundance isn't just a barely more than you need. It's a superfluity. It's an abundant overflow of what we need. Why? So for every good work. So that when a need shows up, when a minister comes in, we don't have to hesitate. We can give generously uh, to support them, to bless them, to be a blessing, knowing that every time we do that, what are we doing? We are sowing generously. And what did he say would happen when we sow generously? We will reap generously. You want a big crop? Plant a lot of seed. Now, back to the tithe very quickly. It says here, and I absolutely agree. There's nothing about the tithe in this passage. It says, let each one give as he purposes in his heart. So does that let you off the hook? First of all, let's go back to the legal issue of the tithe. I've said this before. I'm going to say it quickly. It doesn't mean everybody's heard it, so you still have to listen fast. When Jesus talked about the law, he always raised the bar. Remember, he would talk about, well, you've heard it said uh, you should not commit adultery. But I'm, t I'm telling you that if you even look at a woman with lustful thoughts, if you find yourself thinking about committing adultery, you've already done it in your heart. The problem is not what you walk out and what you act out. It's what are you thinking about? What is, he's talking about just how broken we are. He'd go, I could preach a whole other sermon about that. But you see, he doesn't just say, as long as you technically don't break the law, you're good. He's saying the fact that you want to is the problem. You've heard, you've heard it said, uh, you shall do no murder. But I'm telling you, if you speak hatefully and speak hateful things and call your brother an empty-headed fool, that's, that's a murderous heart. And you're already just as guilty when it comes to sin. So what would you say about the tithe? You've heard it say, I bring the tithe into the storehouse. I say to you, if that's a struggle for you, the problem is you. Want to test your heart? How did he test the heart of the rich young ruler? I've kept all these laws from the youth. Rabbi, what do you want me to do? Uh, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. 
and follow me. If you can't give you what God is telling you to give, if you can't give him what God is, is telling you to give him, then your heart's not in the right place. Let each one give as he purposes in his heart. Why would you purpose less than the tithe? All right? If your heart is like Christ's, what did he hold back? Did he give us 10%? He gave it all, didn't he? I challenge you to read Deuteronomy, Moses' farewell sermon before they entered the land of promise. And I dare you to argue, after reading Deuteronomy, that God is not promising prosperity. This is an Old Testament promise. But I mean, my goodness, the abundance is spelled out, but it's conditional. As long as you keep the law, man, your vats will always be full, your cattle will always be healthy, and so on. And 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says this, All the promises of God are in him, yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. No longer depends on our manifest righteousness, but the fact that we are in Christ his righteousness. In him, all those promises, including the Old Testament promises, are yes and amen. So when you give, you give as an act of worship. When you give, you give as an act of obedience. When you give, you give cheerfully. But when you give, do it in faith. Do it with expectation and that, an expectation that you will receive an abundant supply all sufficiency in all things that you always are well supplied uh, so that you have an abundance, a superfluity, an overflow for every good work. Praise and worship team, come on up here. And when we do this, it is ultimately in recognition that God has held nothing back from us. This is one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? You hear that? This is the exact opposite side of the coin from when somebody says, how can you even think about asking God for money or healing or anything you don't have? If he saved you, he already gave his son to die for you. How could you ask him for anything more? God's take on that is just the opposite. If I didn't withhold my son from you, why would I withhold anything from you? So we give with this sense of expectation, but it goes back to an appreciation for what truly is important. How do I know that God cares about me when it comes to my finances? Because he gave his son to die for me on a cross. He didn't spare his son. Jesus died. He died for us. Stand up with me. He carried our sin to the cross. He died our death on that cross, all to return us into right relationship with the Father. To save us from hell, to return us to a place of blessing, redemption from the curse of poverty, sickness, and death. So let me ask you today, have you availed yourself of that finished work? Let me make it clear to everyone in here. Every single person who has ever lived needs a Savior. 
you might be a good person. But if you are a good person, you are only a relatively good person. You might be better than your neighbor. You might be better than 90% of the people in this room or on this planet. But you know what you have to be to be fit for heaven? You have to be sinless. We just talked about that. When Jesus confronted people, he didn't, he didn't check their track. He didn't check their convictions. He looked at their heart. He didn't look at their criminal record. He said, have you ever, you patting yourself on the back for living a life of self-control. Oh, I might have had a, a certain thought or two, but I've always, I've never raised my hand. I've never acted out. I've never cheated on my wife. And Jesus would say, have you ever thought about it? Have you ever lusted? Have these temptations ever been there? Well, yeah, but then you've got a problem because those thoughts don't occur to sinless people. Well, then who? Then who goes to heaven? Nobody on their own. Who goes to heaven? Those who recognize I can't get there on my own. If I'm going to get a, if to put it crudely, if I'm going to get a ticket, somebody else has to buy it. And Jesus paid our way. He paid that sin debt off. And not only that, when he, he died, he rose from the dead and comes back and says, I have not just saved you from hell. I am offering you a new life in me. A life that is so great that when God looks at you, he sees me and loves you like he loves me and wants to bless you like he blesses me. He will hold nothing back from you if you hold nothing back from him. And my question is simply this. Are you ready to make that decision today? If you have not made that decision, if you cannot think of the time, a time when you said, God, that's me. I need a Savior. And Jesus is clearly the Savior you've provided. And I'm willing to say today, Jesus is my Lord. If, you're, if the thing that's holding you back is, I know I can't live perfectly starting today, that's not the issue. The issue is, are you washed by the blood? And are you hidden in Christ? He'll work on you starting today if you commit your life to Christ today. But that forgiveness is available for all of us who have committed our lives to Christ. I know several people who've been saved and have sinned since they saved. Can you believe it? They never lost their salvation. Their lives are hidden in Christ. And he continues to pour himself into us, to grow us up, to make us more like him. And it's wonderful. It's the life we were created for. You are not going to find ultimate satisfaction. You are not going to find satisfaction at the end of your life without allowing him to set you on the path that he created you for. That only comes with salvation. If you want to make that decision today, just raise your hand and say, Scott, that's me. Don't worry about what anybody else is thinking. This is way too big, way too important a decision to worry about your reputation, embarrassment, anything like that. Jesus was hung. Those pretty pictures you see of Jesus hanging on the cross are not good representations of what he looked like. He hung there stripped, naked, and bleeding in a very humiliating pose. Can you raise your hand and say, that was for me and I need it today? Anybody? Let me pray for us real quick. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these clear principles of giving and receiving. 
thank you for the clear promises you've given us. And we believe as we follow them, we are going to uh, see those results in our lives. But Father, thank you more than anything for Jesus Christ, for not withholding your son for us, for doing the only thing that could save us, giving us Jesus. I pray now, Lord, if there's anybody in the sound of my voice who has never received that gift of salvation, never humbled themselves enough to bow their knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that you would convict them of their need and grant them the humility, the wisdom, and the boldness to make that decision today in Jesus' name. Quickly now again, anybody desire to become a Christian today? I need that new life. I need to be born again. Anybody? All right. Praise the Lord. You can go ahead and be seated very quickly. We'll wrap this up. And let's continue to worship the Lord with our giving. Amen? This is a great opportunity. What are we doing? We are, we are doing a, a, a couple things. We are laying up treasures in heaven, which will straighten out our heart, get us back directly on the right path if we're not there. What else are we doing? We are obeying God. We are honoring God. What else are we doing? We are planting seed. We are opening the door for financial blessing from God himself. What are we doing if we decide not to give? We're shutting that door, keeping those windows closed, and we are walking in a way that can never be described as faith. What's the highest expression of faith? Obedience. We, sh we prove that we believe him when we obey him. He commands us to bring the tithe, the offering, to give according to what's in our heart. So give it and watch God work in your life. Are you ready to give this morning? Hey, if you're giving cash, you need an envelope. Raise your hand. The ushers will get you one. Checks, of course, get made at the Living Word Family Church or simply LWFC. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.